I don't do estimates, but I can do cadence. 1950s microphone is in full effect. <laughs> oh, good. Did the 1950s call you and ask for it back? Is that what happened? Yes. <laughs> I went to a play last night in Ilkley about the 1950s. <laughs> Did they have your microphone? Was it in it? <laughs> it was about this microphone <laughs> for two hours. Who says theatre is dead? Yeah, too right. <laughs> what did you go and see? It was called Here I Belong. So it was about the post-war and baby booming generation. And it was kind of split into four acts where it follows one person getting kind of older and up from 1953 up until 2016. Uh, using more and more modern microphones each year. Yeah, pretty much. In each part. So the reason, actually, that I went to see it is that, I don't know, there's a lot of generational politics, isn't there? There is. And sometimes it's easy to think and say things from a position of ignorance. So I think it's important to go and find out stuff about, you know, all the different generations that are around you today and what it was like for them. Mm. And why... Sometimes you think they don't understand the way the world is now because they look at it through the same lens that they did in 1953. Yeah, and what's right and wrong. and It reminds me of this yeah. Douglas Adams quote. We'll find a link to the original source of it, but it was something like everything that was invented before you were born is just part of the way the world is and is just absolutely normal to you. And everything that's invented between then and when you're age 35 is new and exciting. And perhaps you can even get a job doing something with it. And then everything that's invented after you're 35 is clearly wrong and against the natural order of things and shouldn't be allowed. (laughs) Yeah, too right. See, that's what we went to see. And I just think it's important to try and understand. Empathy, more empathy. That's what the world needs. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, I think... There's a a lot of media coverage of generational divides now. And it's easy to put people in in buckets, isn't it? Based on age or class or all the other things that we're obsessed with. To be fair, sometimes they march indignantly into the buckets. You don't have to put them there. (laughs) Absolutely. But, you know, there's a reason for that too, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Uh, Certainly get behind more empathy. Sounds very interesting. Is it still running? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, it's on for another few days. So if you live in Ilkley... (laughs) You can know that by the time we've edited this podcast, it will have finished and you can't go and see it. Sorry (laughs) about that. You will never see it. (laughs) I'm sure other companies will put it on in other places. Other sources of empathy are available. Thankfully, because if that was the last one, (laughs) that would be (laughs) be disappointing. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Ash. Hello, Ian. How are you? I'm super duper. Super duper. Very excited to be recording this episode within 24 hours of the previous episode going live i still don't believe it no nor do i i'm still expecting to to wake up in a from this fever dream at some point so this will have to be our easter episode there's no other option for it yeah absolutely i propose that we have a two-year break after this episode (laughs) to celebrate our uh, prolificness a second second two-year break (laughs) let's have another yeah (laughs) (laughs) so this can be an easter special and two christmas specials and probably another easter special (laughs) it's a heavy load for one episode to bear well you know it's all about we're improving the average aren't we yes improving the the mean length of time between 
between deployments. Indeed, yes. <laughs> that might be topical in a minute. Maybe we should use the median and then just exclude the uh, two-year gap. And then we'll look very prolific, won't Yes, we? which is, you know, obviously... <laughs> that's definitely what we should do because we didn't want our measurements to make us look bad <laughs> hmm. we might talk about yes, that yes perhaps we might <laughs> so because the episode's only been out one day we haven't had time to receive much feedback <laughs> so unfortunately we've got no real external follow-up to share although i did go through a short period of being a bit nervous because i said in a very bold and unambiguous statement that uh SMTP came from the 1980s and then I had this horrible moment of self-doubt and I went and looked it up and it came out in 1981 the original spec for it I believe that would be RFC 822 for those who like to look things up I'll make a link to that in the show notes because I remember having to spend quite a long time reading it once and it was quite painful they are dry aren't they they are dry yeah I mean purposefully dry yes and to the point yeah yeah, but I find the RFCs very arid places to go and find something out. But I understand why they are like that. It's quite interesting watching the process of them because they're still coming out. Well, that was a conversation stopper, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. Well, you know, there's not too much more to say, is there? Yes. So SMTP, 1980s, victory for Ian's rightness. Which is what this podcast is all about, really, isn't it? <laughs> well, let's just say... Having had some, it's a vehicle for your rightness and perfectionism. Well, maybe the latter, but uh, I seem to find myself having been wrong a few times recently. So I'm just celebrating <laughs> being right for once. As long as you accept no feedback, you're always right. Yes, I'll uh, put my fingers in my ears under my headphones and sing <laughs> la 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 la, just to make sure I hear no feedback at all. Should we talk about some things? Oh, I think that is what we do, isn't it? So we probably should. It is. And Ian, I believe you have a rare privilege of, of going first. Yes. the uh, This time. <laughs> the not all that rare. The privilege of going first. The every other episode privilege of going first. Yes. 50% of the time. Exactly. It's <laughs> not rare, is not, it? No. Not a percent more. So the thing I wanted to talk about this time is a slightly nebulous version, perhaps, of the topic of metrics. Because... I I remember someone years ago saying to me, well, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So this sunk into my young brain, as it was then, as opposed to old and grumpy brain that I've got now. And when I was thinking about this thing, I thought, well, let's dig into that a bit. And, <laughs> and so I found that this quote was being attributed to W. Edward Deming, who uh, famously went to japan from the united states and worked for toyota and and uh, was instrumental in the toyota system that they put in place in their manufacturing production lines which has since come back to the it world and the tech world as lean and all of those kind of practices so and on cords and worker empowerment and all this kind of stuff what i discovered was that w edward deming actually said the exact literally it could not have been more the opposite of you, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. What he, what he actually said was, it is wrong to suppose that if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. <laughs> A costly myth. So I found that slightly, uh, <laughs> slightly shook my confidence in this, this thing. But I thought, well, no, let's talk about it. Because I think people are always trying to find ways to measure things. When you start measuring something, all the people who are being measured start aligning their activities towards improving that 
that measurement. Sure. This is why you get these kind of disasters when people say, oh, well, developers write code, so let's measure them on how many lines of code they write. It turns out that developers can write an awful lot of lines of code if you measure them on that, <laughs> and you disappear down a horrible hole of technical debt and bloat as a result of it. Mm. So sometimes the best thing a developer can do is write minus a thousand lines of code in a day. Yes, yeah. As a, as a tester, the common metrics are obviously number of bugs found and fixed oh, yes. and then uh, number of test cases created and, and executed. And I remember my first dedicated testing job, that was literally your productivity measures. <laughs> literally, that was exactly what you were measured on, how many bugs you, you found. Actually, they didn't really concern themselves about how many were fixed, um, which is actually probably the more important one. <laughs> So you can you can guess the games that were played with that and then how many test cases you created and executed. But it kind of speaks to the same problem as the lines of code, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah you can add a thousand lines of code or you can add a thousand tests, but it depends what the code is or what the test is that you've added, whether it's the, the right test and the most important test. <laughs> but then with bugs as well, it's like, well, did you find the most important bugs or did you just raise... Visual issues are, you know, I, I'm not sure this, this shade of blue is exactly as specified in the specification. Yes. Tick, VG, another test case. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So all, all those things were present there. All those things were present in that, in that environment because of the way that testing was measured. And I think this extends to sales incentives and all kinds of things like that as well, where as soon as you set up a system of measurement, especially if it's linked to compensation or annual reviews or things like that, then people will try to find ways to maximize that metric and they will do things that are not aligned with the outcomes you're trying to achieve, but that make that metric increase. Fixing bugs is a great one. I mean, developers can create a bug and then fix it and then tick, I've got one. Yeah, well, in theory, depending on how you look at it, developers are always fixing bugs, aren't they? (laughs) Yes. From the moment that they begin to create the code, they will have fixed several hundred bugs before the code even gets to somewhere near a tester it completely depends on the point of view doesn't it mm. i've been looking around and i have seen one particular view of what a good set of metrics are but it's interesting everything else i've found as i've been looking into this has, has been basically various stories about bad metrics yeah but google have this devops research and assessment team It's all tied up together with the state of DevOps reports that come out every year. They've identified some metrics that they think are good for technical teams to adhere to. And I think we've all, I say we've all, probably not true, is it? Many teams in the technology world will have heard of that. Their big four things are deployment frequency. So how often does code in your organization go to production? The lead time for changes. So How long does it take from the code being committed to it running in production? Time to restore service. So if you break production or there's some sort of incident, how long does it take you to recover from that? And change failure rate. So what percentage of changes lead to bad things? So they argue that these four metrics, if they are coming out well, they indicate a very high performing tech team that's delivering well yeah and they've got different levels of team from elite high medium and low i guess there's probably an even lower one where they don't (laughs) or worse are unable to measure those things yeah i think that's probably one of them isn't it it's like can't even measure those things 
because there's just no sufficient level of chaos <laughs> that you don't even really know what's happening at any one time. So if I log on to production and tweak a file, does that count as a deployment? Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I think underneath the discussion of the big four metrics, this is stuff that's been, this data has been collected, it's been peer-reviewed, and these are the four metrics that the researchers settled upon to being the most, the most effective. There's still like a layer under there where you've got to think about like what your context is, what your model is. Because it's one thing if you're an e-commerce site and, you know, you have one deploy mm. and then that pushes it out to whatever your estate is. But I don't know if you've got an application which needs to be installed independently on multiple different sites. Then obviously you need to think about, well, probably think about your architecture, <laughs> but also think about, um, you know, how, what that all means for you as well. Yeah. So. Generally, I'll talk about the big four as like a place to start because it's based in peer-reviewed research. For the most part, you could describe it as trustworthy and it's linked to outcomes as well, which is always good. So as like we've talked about before about the um, metrics not being anything to do with the outcomes that you wanted. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because I talked about the bugs found and fixed and then test cases written and executed. It's like in that organization no one ever got what they wanted (laughs) out of the products that appeared they were all still like buggy messes which didn't really do the job (laughs) from a distance they kind of looked like what you wanted them to be then as soon as you started using them you were like oh this is not what i wanted at all so the big four are measured in terms of the outcomes that you're trying to achieve so they're just a good place to start for me because it's, like I say, it's based in peer-reviewed research. So start there, figure out what it means for you. It doesn't preclude you from doing the figure out what it means for you bit. No, no, um, not at all. Which is always behind all, all of the advice on metrics is they all come with, all models come with a proviso unless, you know, they're um, sort of, you know, academically bankrupt, mm-hmm. um, which is like, you need to figure out for yourself what all this means because we don't know your context. So figure it out. Absolutely. Another thing that always strikes me about them is that they're quite focused in what they're about. And so they're about a technology team delivering stuff into production and managing it in production. And they measure the the way in which that's working. But obviously, before you get to the technical team, you've got business people with their own view of, of what's going on. And after it, you've got the end users who are using the thing. And you probably need some other metrics just to maybe put around that, that yeah. recognise the greater length of that kind of value chain. Yeah, because you know, in some organisations still, you may not have the ability to put your code into production. <laughs> yeah, so it completely depends on like the remit of your technical team, doesn't it? Mm. And there's nothing more frustrating for a team if you start to measure them on a metric which they don't have any control over. So if you say, well, how come you haven't done a release to production this week? When you're like, well, actually, we've got four releases queued up, but the operations team, because of the way the organization works, they're the only ones who can do it. And they won't let us near it or, <laughs> you know, whatever what, whatever it is. But it's more of a wider point, isn't it? It's like, if you measure something that you don't have control over, then it's it never seems to me like a particularly good measure. And it only leads to frustration for the team that, a manager might make responsible for it, but they don't actually control it. <laughs> That's really difficult. But on the other hand, I suppose there's a kind of thing there where the team might find that dispiriting, 
But actually, the bigger picture is pointing to where the problem is. I guess that's the next step, isn't it? <laughs> you have to actually go to where the problem is, go to where the actual bottleneck is and start to work on it and elevate it and find ways to alleviate it. We're back to the goal. Yeah. And the factory with the big piles of materials on the input to the deploying it to production station. Yeah, absolutely. And seeing where the materials are piling up yeah. on the inputs to know that that's the thing you should optimise for your end-to-end yeah. process. So I guess that's the other way to look at metrics is that they're a signal, aren't they? Of something to follow, something to say, oh, hey, well, why does it take you know this long to do this thing from code commit to it running in production? Why is that suddenly so long? Ah, right, okay, because uh, there's actually four teams involved in that. Whereas what we should be doing is saying, well, the one team who's responsible for the code should be the ones who are, should have control of that process. So then we can get that, that metric down rather than it being an, an absolute thing linked to... Yeah, yeah I think the danger, like, as you alluded to before, is like you bring these things into like people's performance. Oh, yeah, no, that's just... No, yeah. no, don't do that. Because, again, it comes back to the... A few episodes ago, we talked about like, like 65% of... Functionality that's ever built is never used yes. or rarely used or, or whatever it was. And in theory, we should say, well, we should be looking for the you know top 20% of functionality that makes the most money and brings the most joy and just build that and then take the rest of the time off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think that would please a metric, would it? No. Met- a certain metric, sorry. Metrics are notoriously implacable. Yes, and they're often linked to productivity as well. And the obsession with productivity, rather than doing the right things, it's doing doing more things. Yeah, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because the other question is, what's a metric for? Hmm. And I think that what you just said about this thing of metrics being used to evaluate people's performance the more I, I think on that, the more anathema that seems to me. Yeah. I think that seems to be the worst possible idea because actually what you're trying to do is make a system of moving parts work better end to end and there's no good blaming a team if there's a big pile of stuff on their input yeah you what you need to do is to look at is to look at and try and understand what is the reason for that is it because they are under resourced is it because there's something complicated about the way that they have to do their work that we should is it because there's not enough automation yeah yeah i mean clearly there's a need to evaluate the performance you know if you're paying people to do things you need to know that they're doing them to the standard that you're paying them for but that seems to be a different conversation than measuring the efficiency of your system that's putting things out into production yeah Metrics for individual performance and for productivity, most I would say for the most part, they describe like local optimization. Yes. So as in working furiously on a part of the system, which where there's no bottleneck <laughs> or it doesn't really matter or it doesn't make any difference to the, you know, to the, like say, the wider delivery of the system. So I guess that's the other thing with metrics as well. They're used as evidence for or for, for local optimizations, or do they push the teams or the people who work on the teams in that direction to look to optimize like their little bit? Yeah. I guess that's the point, isn't it? If you're looking to optimize that little bit, then that's like the real cost of chasing metrics, isn't it? Because you end up just locally optimizing and ignoring the wider system. Yeah, and I guess that's what's so great about the DORA metrics, 
is that they force you to consider at least the mm. technology team's output as a whole. Yeah. And if you are doing pointless local optimizations, then you won't make any difference to those metrics. Yeah. So you probably won't do them. Yeah. I think what, when you look at the, those four, they're actually incredibly well designed, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Because they are specific, but they encompass a great many different functions within technology um, that you would need in order to a be able to measure those things and b in order to get better at them yeah and improve them so they are very specific but they i think they do encompass many things that you need in order to be a better delivery of technology function if you like indeed this may be an aside but i always remember being measured on um, billable utilization <laughs> um, me too which was a thing over which i the the people that really controlled that were how good were the salespeople. Yeah, who were selling the projects for me to work on. And if they didn't do very well, there would be no projects to work on and I would theoretically then be uh, miss my, my target for billable utilisation. And it was just... I remember being annoyed and frustrated by that at the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about that thing of can you control the thing you're being measured on? Because obviously sales is an act of trying to trying to achieve the sale. And then, but utilization is just, you know, it's a fairly sort of static thing, isn't it? You know what I mean? It's just like, well, I am on this thing. Yeah. It could be a proxy for desirability relative to other similarly skilled people in the organization. Yeah. But yeah. that's a very vague and hard to measure. Yeah. But I guess that's the thing. It's like, what about the hard to measure things? Like how happy people are in their roles? I know you can measure that. Is there a happiness index? There are actually quite a lot of apps that you can buy as a company. I think they're quite expensive, a lot of them. They send out automated one-question questionnaires to the team every month. Yeah. And the team, or every week even, and the team just press a button in the email to, to say, I'm feeling happy, I'm feeling like my work is under control, I don't know, whatever it might be. And, and then they can plot happiness over time and you can start figuring that out i think actually if they're genuinely anonymous and people believe that they are then i think that actually works reasonably well but i'm not sure that <laughs> i'm not sure that's an answer to your your point but <laughs> no no I, I know what you mean i guess there's there's like different levels isn't there you've got you've got kind of that i would describe that as a fairly, fairly sort of shallow metric not in that it's not useful as in you know a person receives a, a message of some description then clicks on a button to say yeah at this moment i'm feeling you know good bad frustrated whatever it is whatever the options yeah. are then yeah i think you can get some you can get some good stuff from that and i think it's yeah it's like i said the anonymous part of that is the important part uh, as well, isn't it? yes it has like, to be ash has clicked he is frustrated for two days in a row release the hounds <laughs> yes yes um, <laughs> the uh, mr burns school of uh, employee <laughs> happiness yeah but again, that's that's an interesting thing to measure, isn't it? It's like, I, I often think of, how do we know we're building the right thing? And how do you measure that as well? Ooh. Rather than all the tons of stuff that get built that don't do anything, or maybe are just context and contributory to, contributory to other things. But how do you measure that kind of work as well? So obviously, we then come up with measures like, well, how much money is it made? It's like, well, okay. but Also, you could uh, instrument your code. Yeah. So you could, at a feature level, instrument your code to say to increment a counter in a database somewhere whenever someone uses that feature. But yeah, 
Yeah, it's all a bit blunt instrument, isn't it? Yeah, and it's like, hence the interpretation as well, isn't it? But I do think there probably is a role for systems to aggregate and present this data. You know, like we're talking about like happiness data. <laughs> and it's like, well, actually, could you, systems can help and say, well, actually, in this, in this particular part of the business, then more people are, are clicking, I'm frustrated. You need to be able to compare it like over time as well. So I think systems, they can help with these things, can't they? Yes, they. I think they can. Although it reminds me of, I remember playing a role-playing game in the 1980s called Paranoia, which was a post-apocalyptic game. The setting was a place called Alpha Complex, which was the only human underground base that had survived the, the terrible nuclear, whatever it was that was imagined. And it was run by this computer who uh, who pretends to be on your side, but isn't really. But I remember the catchphrase from it was, um, the computer wants you to be happy. If you're not happy, you'll be used as reactor shielding. <laughs> Don't know why, that's always stuck with me. <laughs> I think that's because there's truth there, isn't there? There, there is, yeah. yeah. There is. So I don't know what the one true answer is for metrics. And I can see the vast array of, of bad answers. But I think I agree with you that maybe those uh, those four Doro metrics would be the starting place yeah. and and getting yourself to the position where you're able to measure them as well because you have to get onto the starting line of now we're going to track some things that we weren't tracking before yeah and then it doesn't preclude the we need to think about what this means for us no part of it no although no. which is the that's the really valuable part isn't it for the organization it is but it's also the part that you can if you're cunning, you can defang the whole thing and make it not yeah, no, absolutely. Ha- have an impact because you're just going to use, oh, well, how it works for us is that um, we're only going to count this or we're not going to, we're going to count that as a release to production or we're going to, yeah, all yeah, the equivocations that, that you might make. Yeah. So say if your team um, doesn't have access to production to deploy, <laughs> then you could say, well, actually the team has, deployed x number of releases to the staging environment or the customer test environment or whatever it is and is that okay it's like well you could argue that because then the team could then just pile up thousands upon thousands of releases in customer test and nothing goes to production so i think the uh, devops people would say well actually you make them accountable for it going into production but you include the ops team in the accountability and the metric (laughs) yeah or, yeah. or is that just evil? No, I think that's, well, that's what the metric is yeah. encouraging you to do, isn't it? Yeah, again, it think it's it's a it's specific, but it's holistic in terms of all the functions that you need in order to make that metric happen, right? Hmm. So it's like in your context, if you suddenly if you do, if you need your operations team to get something into production, then your development team and your operations team, by its nature, then have to work together, don't they, to make it happen more often? Yeah. Uh, and that's the the behaviour it's trying to encourage, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And there's all the cultural change associated with breaking yeah, down those yeah, walls absolutely. between these the walls of blame between the different functions and things like that. Yeah, all the good stuff, the hard stuff. Yes, but interesting stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hard but interesting. Hard but interesting. Okay, so yeah, I'd be interested to hear what any of our listeners think about this. No, indeed. And uh, what their experience of metrics, good and bad, might be. And then uh, if you let us know then we'll we'll talk about it in the beginning of the next episode. Yeah, please do. You can reach us on Twitter at, at what a lot of thing. I still think that's funny after all these years. You can 
comment on our LinkedIn post for this episode, or you could find our Instagram video from 2019. <laughs> <laughs> marvel at that. And marvel at that and then comment about metrics underneath it, which would be slightly bizarre, but you know. So yes, get back to us. Let us know what you think. So that was my thing. That was a great thing, Ian. Thank you. Cool. So what's your thing, Ash? My thing is called, well, so it's, it's kind of a personal thing as well. Um, so a personal story, which feeds into a, a wider trend, if you like, on, on the internet. So I've, I've called it scrum bashing. Uh-huh. So I came across a, a website the other day called uh, scrumsallegiance.org, which um, is a direct parody of the uh, I think it's the Scrum Alliance, isn't it? Scrum Alliance or Scrum.org site. It looks very, very similar to one of those. And it talks about how becoming certified in Scrum can enable you to become much more average but get paid more. <laughs> and how Scrum will be about crushing individuals and their creativity and uh, standardizing everything and making the world a much more terrible place. I've just opened it up now and it says, You seek legitimacy. You want certificates. You achieve mediocrity. <laughs> Your business has been ignoring the challenge. Oh, no, I'm not going to keep reading it, but yes, what, what you said there. <laughs> so I find myself laughing at that. Yeah. But so here's the personal bit. So uh, quite a lot, a lot of years ago, I went to do the certified Scrum Master course. Um, I fought quite hard to be able to go and do that. Mm. You know that thing where you're at an organization and you have to like justify going to do a training course to like, you know, out of existence basically. And it's like a, you have to close all the logical loopholes Mm. as to why you couldn't do something. So basically (laughs) the company can't refuse you anymore under any reasonable grounds apart from saying that they don't like you. So I went to Manchester. (laughs) It wasn't offered in Leeds, obviously. Um, (laughs) And did the certified scrum master qualification. And I was really proud of it when I got it. Mm. Well, you would be. And I'd been really looking forward to it and went and did the course. There was a couple of people I met on the course, Steve Traps and John Fulton, who I'm still in touch with today and mm. still work with sometimes as well. So I made really good friends, learned a lot. Loads of people were there from lots of different size and shape organizations. We talked about loads of great things. Um, and then when I had it, I, I felt confident. I felt good. Yeah. I felt like I'd learned something and I had something like new to contribute. So I've seen like testers were um, often moving towards like scrum, scrum master sort of roles and having the, the certification to back up the, that sort of momentum, if you like, of, of moving into these different roles. I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. So I even took it like one step further as well. I went and did the certified scrum product owner course as well. Oh, wow. So I was a CSM and a CSP, which again, I kind of, once I'd done that, I, I felt like, oh, I've, I've gained something else there as well. I've gained a, a bit more confidence. So when I'm speaking to product owners about things, I've got a bit more insight into what they're thinking. Mm. I was like, this is cool. And then the world turned a bit. or gradually started to turn. Maybe certifications just got bigger and bigger business and everyone started doing them. Um, and then the, the sort of chat about them being meaningless tick boxes, which offended me a bit at first. So that sort of started to started to come out, and that doing Scrum like wasn't being agile. You know, the doing versus being. So like, well, you're just doing Scrum. You're not being <laughs> agile. And then, oh well, Scrum's for managers and not developers. Developers hate <laughs> doing Scrum. 
And then loads of teams were like, well, we're, gonna, we're doing Kanban now. And so a full-on rebellion. And then eventually it was like, well, only like the banks and government with the sort of glacial change of uh, progress. And now they're doing Scrum. And then, of course, you had the Scrum Dementalists. We talked about that a bit yeah, yeah. earlier on as well, didn't we? Saying, well, you don't like Scrum because you just aren't doing it properly. You're not following the guide. Yeah. So there was just like this constant sort of wave of, of negativity, which is sort of gradually growing into a bit of a tsunami. And then I find myself, I find me doing it now as well. <laughs> so I'll go to like a particularly crappy planning session or a pointless retro where everybody just moans about things that are outside the team's control. And, <laughs> you know, you go to a stand up where someone asks you what your status is. So, and I find myself complaining about Scrub now as well. I said the other day, on my last client, actually, I was like, the problem with Scrum is that you stop working and you just talk about Scrum all the time. Nobody <laughs> does anything anymore. You just talk about Scrum and all its ceremonies. Oh. And that's, that's like the team's job for, <laughs> for like, you know, for the foreseeable future until you decide you, you don't want to do Scrum anymore and you're going to try Kanban. So I'm just like, how did I get from being proud of my certifications to joining the, the cynical masses? There's so much interesting that you've just sort of said there and there is this kind of the thing is that the accusation that certifications are just big business is not a million miles out no you know th- there's certainly a lot of money that is made sometimes for providing perhaps not all that much it's a brand thing you know if the scrum alliance says i know scrum then i then i must do but the cost to them of asserting that is quite minimal compared to the amount that you have to pay for it but there's a way in which certifications are brilliant. And it's quite interesting, actually. If you look at the different disciplines of engineering, if you're a civil engineer, then your job is you design, build bridges and, hmm. and you know, maybe infrastructure things. And you don't get to just do that. So in the UK, you have to be a member of the Institute of Civil Engineers and you have to be recertified every so often, all those kinds of things in order to continue to design bridges because if you let anyone design a bridge then the chances are that eventually it's going to fall on somebody and people are going to get killed and you look at software and you think well actually software is everywhere now and software can kill people very easily yep. in in many contexts <laughs> it can also be very annoying in some contexts but mm. uh, i guess uh, that doesn't quite have the same seriousness <laughs> if software can be safety critical why isn't there a professional body that you have to be a member of in order to be a software engineer. Yeah. And the answer is it's just not evolved like that. And in the UK, the British Computer Society has a thing called um, Certified IT Professional. And it has other... Uh, the, so they're working on professionalising IT. You know, you can be an open group certified technology architect. In fact, yeah. I was for a bit. And again, that's, you know, you have to submit case studies and an evidence that you're you're practicing as a as an IT architect or a technology architect with successful results otherwise they won't they won't certify you so in some ways i think that the IT industry needs a level of professionalism in that way to be added to it I, i'm not sure how f- thick a line you can draw from that yeah. to being a certified scrum master but i think it's in, it's important to have professional standards that we must adhere to because the work we do justifies that and it's not always it's not always present yeah so this is my kind of ambivalence around <laughs> around certifications 
But I always applaud when I see people passing their AWS solution architect sure. um, qualification yeah. or the Scrum ones or anything else, because mm. I believe that you need to build your skills and proving it with these certifications is a, is a really, I believe it has a lot of value. Yeah, yeah. I think, like say, the in technology, we've not coalesced around a, a set of, it's probably way too early for that as well, isn't it? To coalesce around a set of standards, if you like. What? Early days? Yeah, Come early on, days. We mocking Bitcoin. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm going to get my blockchain certification and then, you know, yeah, two minutes later, then. it'll be out of date. Um, <laughs> but it's probably, yeah, it's probably too early to coalesce around these in technology. But I also think that whatever certification you've got, there's going to be some value in there depending on what you're doing, right? So I, I kind of mentioned the specific use case where it's like a lot of testers were stepping up or stepping into Scrum Master type roles mm. or doing more of that type of work, whether it was facilitating ceremonies or writing user stories, whatever it is, yeah? Yeah. So it had very it had some value for me at the time as well. On the same course that I went on, a particularly large, I think it was a building society around around here, had sent mm-hmm. all of their project managers on it. And they were like, I hate the phrase, but, you know, like sheep dipping them <laughs> into Scrum. So that's, uh, that, uh, but there's, there's kind of another argument there as well, where it's like, so I had, I, had, I had identified something that I wanted to do that was going to be useful to me in my context. Whereas for, for those other people on the course, had been, they had been... Um, volunteered, voluntold to go and do this particular qualification because um, someone somewhere in their technology function had said, right, we're doing Scrum now. So I guess it's like treating treating certifications with the right degree of scepticism and then also picking the one that's like useful for your context versus everyone in the company must go and do this thing. I see those as, as two kind of key habits, if you know what I mean of recognizing how useful certifications are. Yeah, I mean, the other, and I feel like, I mean, it's interesting that that term sheep dipping is hilarious (laughs) to me because it's just, you know that you're not, you can't feel significant in an organization that sheep dipping you in something. You know, It just removes the ticks, basically. It puts you in the role of the sheep. (laughs) Which is not a great... No, great, it's um, not. It's not the nicest phrase. <laughs> no. <laughs> to me, it's coming back to this scrum-dementalist thing. Mm. Since we're um, we're making new compound words. I like voluntold. <laughs> that was very good. Um, but it comes back to this kind of scrum-dementalist thing. Because one of the things that I really believe is that teams should have... Teams should reflect and then they should change what they do. Yeah. And there's this, but there's this kind of feeling among some Scrum people that teams should do exactly Scrum and uh, not a jot else and not a jot less, which seems to me to be against the idea of reflection and feedback and improving yeah. the way you do work. It seems fundamentally opposed to it. Mm. And I don't know what the Scrum Alliance's position on, on this is. I feel as though they have some safeguarding position where they say well you know we're not going to let you call anything scrum that isn't scrum for example yeah from a intellectual property point of view but i i feel like if we're not allowing people if we're trying to if we're using it as a straitjacket i think that's a i think that's profoundly wrong 
maybe it should be a starting off point because mm. the other thing that happens is people just change the names of their meetings oh we're not going to have a product update anymore it's going to be called a stand-up and we're not going to have yeah. we're not going to have the uh the wash-up meeting anymore that's going to be called a retrospective but the the content of the <laughs> those, those things stays the same i don't know i think this is a, that's a slightly different point isn't it well but, i don't know because i'm I, the thing is with things like scrum i'm always slightly suspicious that whether or not it was intended in this way that it it will just be used as camouflage. Yeah. So it, it, it's similar to safe, isn't it? It's like to me, and again, <laughs> this is my this is this is cynicism coming out. Um, so you could probably include safe bashing as well as scrub bashing. Is that to me, safe just looks like cover for what your organization already does. <laughs> so, ooh, you heard it first here. Yeah, <laughs> fighting talk. <laughs> <laughs> so. I would actively avoid safe implementations if someone said, oh, hey, Ash, this is a job of your dreams. We do safe. I'd be like, well, you haven't seen my dreams. That's the kind of dream you wake up sweating from in the middle of the night, <laughs> hoping it doesn't come back. <laughs> now, I guess I have the nagging feeling that Scrum, it, it probably wasn't intended to be, but it might well be just like a, a bit of camouflage for what you do now in order to look like things are changing when the behavior is underneath are not and the 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 system the system emerges intact yeah. and systems are quite good at that aren't they they are yeah you know so you know you can start a process and get rid of all the people who did the process and instantiated the process but the process will still remain yeah well people always just get bought into things don't they and then once they're bought into it yeah. to change it would imply they must be wrong in some way yeah people don't like that yeah yeah i mean after i did my um the two scrum qualifications, I went and did the, I went and collected more, actually, you know, I think about it. <laughs> I went and did the, the Lean Kanban Foundation course, which was really interesting as well. But again, that, that kind of changed a few things in my head too. Hmm. So I was like, that was the first time I'd really been introduced to wider systems. And I think, I think there was a certification involved with that, but nothing that had like, for good or ill, the industry recognition of a certified scrum master or certified product owner. But again, it was like part of my learning journey. So my, I guess what I'm trying to say is my sort of learning journey has included certifications, not certifications, other things that are just kind of, you know, mm. off the beaten track a little bit. So, but they've all been part of it. They've all been part of like me becoming who I am and thinking the way that I think. So, so maybe I have just, uh, I don't know, maybe because of that appreciation of wider systems, you start to see the limitations of what Scrum is. And then you start to sort of think, well, actually, maybe there are a lot of flaws in it, which I couldn't see before. And that's why I've become a bit more questioning of it to the point of being a bit cynical sometimes. Well, I think when you start using things, that's when you discover mm. what their utility is, your real utility is. Because I remember being fooled loads of times by methods. <laughs> and you look at a method and you just think, oh, yes, this is wonderful. If we just did this, it solves all of the things that are causing us all these problems. It'll be wonderful. And you try and do it and you realize, well, actually, it's still hard. Yeah. There's still uh, a load of stuff there that, well, actually, it'd be nice if the world matched this, but it doesn't in this case. Mm. That kind of thing. So I, th I, I think it's the practice. Maybe if they did a Scrum certification that was similar to what I remember doing as an architect, as a technology architect, where instead of go going on a course and passing an exam, you write case studies that are peer-reviewed. 
Yeah. Um, and you explain what you did and, and why did you do it? And mm. how did your project vary from the Scrum methodology? How did it employ it? Why did you take those decisions? And you have to write all that up and explain it to somebody, yeah. even in an interview or something. But it's that kind of rather than showing that you know facts, it's examining your actual real world usage of it. I think. Yeah, yeah. You've kind of applied them and then varied them, you know, where you need to. I found it tremendously difficult to do those things. It took me years of procrastination to write a three case studies <laughs> explaining why I'm brilliant. Uh, it doesn't come naturally to technical people, I think, quite often. No. I do remember looking a bit further ahead to the, the certified Scrum professional program, mm. um, which I think did say do things like that, you know, write down the case study. Yeah. But then, you know, I was, I was too busy doing the work by then um, to stop and think about the work. <laughs> yeah. So I think you can do things like that. And I think like, I'm with you there. That's that's where I think the value truly is, isn't it? Yeah, um, I mean, that's how to evaluate it. One final thing that has just occurred to hmm. me about this is that we've not said there's a word that's been conspicuous to me by its absence. We haven't said the word agile. Um, Why do you think that is? So I think I said it. Okay. I think I did say it once. Well, I wasn't but, listening. Uh, it was more at the start. It was more like just doing Scrum wasn't being agile. Yes. So, you know, that, but it was meant as a um, an accusation rather than a... Um, but I do know what you mean. I do know what you mean. It's like, but again, it's another... You could probably... We could probably have another thing in the next episode called Agile Bashing, couldn't we? <laughs> um, which is like <laughs> very kind of similar... Um, we could, you know, we could get placards, yeah. couldn't we, with down with this sort of thing written on them. Down with this sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, too right, too right. So yeah, I think, I, I know what you mean. Um, and I do think that there's probably, like I said, there's something in it where the two have been used interchangeably. I remember going to a talk when someone referred to Scrum as Agile Scrum throughout. And I was like, if you say that one more time, I'm literally going to get up on stage with you. <laughs> I didn't. I just thought that. Would you? Would you just stand Plus, there like the uh, like the owl? <laughs> <laughs> Get out of my house. I, I um, I'm going to. We're going to have to find a way to link to that that picture of the. It's from the first Winnie the Pooh book, which is now in the public domain. And there's a wonderful picture <laughs> of owl frowning at Winnie the Pooh. That we will. Uh, Winnie the Pooh has just said, "Agile Scrum," yeah, and yes, the owl is yes, frowning at him. The owl is you. <laughs> cool. That was my thing. That's a great thing. I feel like we could probably have talked for another hour about it in a kind of yeah, yeah. There's a lot in there, isn't increasing there? technology or terms. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a brilliant thing because there's just so much of interest in it to talk about. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Fabulous. Okay. So I forgot. Is this our Easter special, 2024? It's Valentine's Day special. Valentine's Day special. Yeah. Well, I've got to say, Ash, that is the tightest deadline you've ever proposed, unless <laughs> you're referring to Valentine's Day in a different year. Exactly. You see, now you're understanding my uh, estimation, quoting, forecasting capability. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just make it as vague as possible and just let other people fill their assumptions in. I said Valentine's Day. You assume that, that I meant the, whenever Valentine's Day is. I was just thinking that romance is not dead in this podcast. Romance is not dead. It's not. So yeah, um, let other people fill in their their own deadlines. And then they say, Ash, isn't it ready yet? Yeah. Like, oh, you made up the deadline, not yeah, me. Yeah. I never said that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no wonder no one ever asks me for anything anymore.
I do. <laughs> That's probably my undoing, isn't it? <laughs> Is there anything else we have to tell the lovely listeners before we go? I don't think so. We did the get in contact in the middle, didn't we, this time? We varied, we, we varied things up. Yeah. And two instances of laughing at, at what a lot of thing would be, uh, well, I think it would put me over the edge, to be honest. I, <laughs> that, that much hilarity. That much hilarity would be just too much. <laughs> Mind you, people are joining our LinkedIn group, so it's not just the two of us. <laughs> oh, it doesn't feel quite so exclusive yeah, anymore. candlelit LinkedIn group. See, <laughs> see romance, not dead. <laughs> but uh, no, we've, uh, we're having a... Uh, last time I looked, it was a intimate group of seven. So welcome to all of you who've done that. And all of the rest of you should do that as well. We'll get you on the certification track soon. Yes, certified certified technology, Eeyore. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Let the madness begin. Yes. Um, yep. Shall we charge £1,500, I guess, for the course? More than that. More than that. It's, it's priceless <laughs> certification, isn't it? Priceless certification. You just keep paying. It's because it's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, too right. So you should keep paying. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> I think we're going to have to pay a royalty to, to Mary, who came up with that turn of phrase in her uh, oh. review of our performance as podcasters. <laughs> okay. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you very much for listening, everybody. Yeah, thank you.